And good morning. It's lovely to see you all uh, here today. There's a few faces I don't recognise, so if I can add my welcome to, uh, to Alex's. It's lovely to see you here this morning, especially if this is your first time. Now, you might have noticed you join us just at the very end, the fourth chapter of a short series in, uh, in Jonah, but I hope uh, we'll be able to keep up to speed uh, together, even if this is, this is your, your first time. You might find it helpful to keep page 928 in your Bibles open. That means that you can check that what I'm saying is, is what the Bible says. And uh, you might have a little mint-coloured sheet, which will give you a steer on, on where I'm going, if you want to make notes, if that's your inclination. Before I start, shall I lead us in prayer together? Father, we've just sung um, that you would speak to us, and we're confident you will. We're confident that you will speak, but Lord, we know it is hard to listen. It is hard to hear difficult words. And we pray, Lord, you would grant us ears to hear. We pray that you would give us such a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ through these passages that we would be changed to live and speak for you. Amen. At the moment, Hannah and I quite like going swimming with Chloe on our days off. And I've discovered that whatever leisure centre we go to, um, there's always a strategically placed vending machine just outside the changing rooms. So you've just burnt off lots of calories, and there before you is this uh, chocolate machine sort of luring you in. But I've come to be rather distrustful of uh, vending machines over the years, because the number of times, I don't know if you've found this, the number of times I've, I've put my money in the machine, I've beeped in my code for my wheat crunchy biscuits, whatever I want, and then nothing happens. The coin is definitely in the machine. I put it in, but it's, it's just not registering. And so it's only once I sort of look both ways and then start rocking this two-ton machine or, or give it a big slam on the side. It's only then that the, the coin drops and my wheat crunchies come out. Now I wonder if that picture might help us as we come to consider at the very end of this rather short book. Because we might well be asking of Jonah, why hasn't the coin yet dropped? I mean, chapter 3 would have been a rather obvious place to end the book, don't you think? Jonah eventually reaches this Assyrian city of Nineveh. He's there with dragging heels. He reluctantly delivers God's message, having tried to sabotage it. But miraculously, the entire city turns to believe in God. And I bet you anything, I bet if you go home later on, open your children's Bibles, that is where the story ends. But it is not where the story ends. Because this book isn't primarily about God's grace going to unbelieving nations. Now, this book is here to ask the question of God's own people, Israel then and us now, to ask this question, why are we so reluctant to extend God's grace to others? What stops us from sharing God's grace with others. Because for most of us, a bit like Jonah, our problem isn't ignorance. We have all this knowledge, all this theology, all this Bible teaching, but if you like, if you like, the coin is in the machine, but yet, like Jonah, it hasn't dropped yet. We can be so hesitant, can't we? So unenthusiastic, so grudging, about opening up our mouths and speaking about God's grace to others, extending God's grace to others, 
The coin's in the machine, but why hasn't it dropped? Well, chapter four is really the punchline of the book. The book doesn't make any sense without it. So as we stare one last time into this black mirror, let's ask ourselves, why hasn't the penny dropped for me? Why hasn't the penny dropped? Our chapter begins, our first point, with Jonah's anger at Nineveh's deliverance. Follow with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the very end of chapter 3 and verse 10 on page 928. Follow with me. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Now our translation here is a little bit too British, a little bit too polite. Jonah isn't so much greatly displeased, which is kind of how I feel when I lose my TV remote. No, it's much stronger than that. Jonah considers God's compassion to be exceedingly evil. So you can imagine when this story would have been told around Israel's campfires, there would have been absolute silence at that point. Someone might have choked on their kebab. Did he, did he just call God evil? I mean, it's funny. Jonah hasn't once expressed any anger at Nineveh's evil against God. But now that God shows compassion to, and grace to them, suddenly it's exceedingly evil. And all the toys are thrown out of the pram and, and, and we're left asking, why is Jonah so angry? I mean, surely it's a good thing that this whole city turns to God. We need to know a bit of history. At this point in time, the nation of Israel was not really that different from Nineveh. For years, uh, the prophets Amos and Hosea had been carefully exposing Israel to her own idolatry, her own wickedness, her own brutality. And they warned that unless Israel turned to believe in God again, then God would send her enemy, Assyria, to come and destroy them. So to Jonah's mind, the situation here at the end of verse 3 is terrifying. The Assyrian capital of Nineveh has now turned to believe in God, whereas Israel is still unrepentantly clinging to her idols. And so Jonah's putting two and two together, and he's fearing that Nineveh's deliverance would spell Israel's destruction. So in verse 2, Jonah's anger explodes out in prayer. And as ever, his theology is just spot on, but it it, it drips with irony. Look at verse 2 with me. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's prayer here, it kind of explains all of his weird behavior in the past three chapters. And this is why he ran from God in chapter one. This is why he wants to be thrown into the ocean. This is why he tried to sabotage God's message last week. Jonah did not want to risk God's grace going to Assyria. 
his, his big idol was being threatened. The thing he lived for, his national success, is now in danger. And so he says he'll prefer to die than to return to his own people in shame. So once again, Jonah's prayer, it shows that he's got all of the gear, but no idea. All the gear, but no idea. His prayer, it quotes from Exodus 34. Alex began our service with, the, with, that, with those words. That the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Aren't those beautiful words? But Jonah thinks they're ugly. He thinks they're ugly words because surely God's steadfast love is, is only for pure Israelites like himself. And not, not the idolatrous Assyrians over there. It seems the irony is completely lost on Jonah. Because back in Exodus 34, when that statement was first made, Israel had just finished constructing an enormous golden calf. God's compassion to Israel then is no different from his compassion to idolatrous Nineveh now. So in verse 4, God skewers Jonah with a really penetrating question. Verse 4, the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Of course, Jonah has no right, does he? He has no right to be angry, but here he remains silent. It seems he cannot be reasoned with. God's going to have to help Jonah to see his own hypocrisy. So notice how quickly his anger at Nineveh's deliverance turns to delight at his own deliverance. This is our second point. Follow with me from verse 5. Verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Seems Jonah hasn't given up hope that God might destroy Nineveh. We can picture him sort of leaving the city in a bit of a huff. He finds a nice view overlooking the valley. He, it's a bit hot, so he creates a shelter out some of the stone and the clay that he finds there. And there he sits, eyes fixed on Nineveh, hoping that their repentance is incredibly short-lived and that he might get to see some enormous fireballs falling from heaven. But as Jonah sits there, Stewing, still furious, still hot under the collar. He begins to notice that actually it is, it is quite hot, isn't it? His clay shelter in the, the baking midday sun, it would have created something like an oven. And it's funny, a moment ago Jonah wants to die and now it really seems that might happen. So with his life at stake, God once more intervenes. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. You remember two weeks ago how God provided a fish to deliver Jonah from those deadly waters? Well, now he provides a castor oil plant, which has these big, big leaves to deliver him from the baking heat. Now, there's some very, very clever wordplay here, which is slightly lost in our translation. Jonah is not so much 
eased at his discomfort. But literally, he is saved from disaster. That's what this word says, saved from disaster. And it is the exact same phrase used back in verse 10 to describe what happened to the Ninevites. So do you see the irony here? Jonah experienced the exact same deliverance as the city. And for them, it's exceedingly evil. For him, he is exceedingly happy. And this kind of shows our third point tonight, uh, this morning, that, that, that Jonah's main concern is really himself. His main concern is, is himself. This is the idol which God now sets about to expose. So our story continues in verse 7. At verse 7. At dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. So, so silly, isn't it? Jonah was exceedingly happy with his plant, we're told. He loved its, its big shady leaves. He loved the comfort it gave him. But he wakes up the next morning to discover that his beloved plant is dead. His comfort is gone and the blazing sun is again threatening disaster upon him. And Jonah is angry enough to die. Why is God doing this? I mean, providing Jonah relief one day and then removing that relief from him the very next day. I mean, on the surface, it seems a bit callous, doesn't it? It seems a bit pointless. But actually, it's very clever. God is using this plant to expose Jonah's idolatrous self-concern. I mean, Jonah was delighted, wasn't he, when he'd been shown grace and comfort. But he was furious that God might then extend that same grace to the nations. For Jonah, it seemed right that God brings disaster upon Nineveh, but now disaster's coming on him. It's totally unacceptable. Jonah has a completely distorted view of God. And he's angry that God refuses to conform to it. Jonah wanted a God who was consistently biased towards his own people, always ruling in their favour. He wanted a God who punished the evil of the enemies, but sort of shrugged his shoulders at, at their evil. And it is this idolatrous self-concern which blinds him to, hit, to God's grace. It, it blinds him uh, from wanting to extend this grace to others. Meaning that, in the end, Jonah cared more about getting sunburned than the life of 120,000 people. He was utterly blinded by self-concern. So our story comes to an end with Jonah's concern for himself being contrasted, finally, with God's concern for the lost. Follow with me at verse 10 in your Bibles. Verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. 
But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This word concerned, it's, it's, it's a very strong word. It means pity to the point of bearing tears. So this really is a ridiculous final scene. You can picture there Jonah in verse 10, weeping, weeping tears at his shriveled plant. Poor plant, he thinks. Poor me, he sighs. And around the campfire of Israel, they would have been laughing at this bizarre valuation of life. Because how much more should God pity Nineveh? How much more should God weep for that once lost city? I mean, Jonah's plant, it was, it was only a day old, here today, gone tomorrow. Whereas Nineveh is so ancient, it's referred all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. <laughs> Jonah's plant, he didn't make it, did he? But God made every single person in that city. Each one precious to him, made in his image. He knows them each by name. He knows how many hairs are on each of their heads. Jonah's plant, it has no real value, does it? But Nineveh was home to more than 120,000 people. And each of them were living out their days in utter darkness. Going from birth to death without having any knowledge of God. Without any hope of salvation for the day when they visit God or God visits them. And that's where the book ends. On that cliffhanger. As Jonah's left weeping for his plant, God's question is left hanging in the air. Should I not be concerned with that great city? And it ends like this because God's people need to ask that same question of themselves. Both Israel then and and us now, should we not be concerned about the lost in our city? So I think as this book delivers its punchline, as this black mirror is at last turned fully in our direction, we're encouraged here to take a long, hard Look at ourselves. This is a satire. It's a comedy with a point. And we, friends, we dare not miss the point. I've got three questions as we finish to help us do just that. First question is this. Do we show grace to others? Do we show grace to others? I mean, Jonah loved it, didn't he? When God shows grace and patience with him. Israel loved it when God shows grace and patience to them. But here they are unwilling to extend it to their enemy when they stand just as guilty before God. And are we so very different? A Jonah, I think, lurks in each of our hearts. Even in a Bible-believing, sound church like our own. I mean, why is it, why is it that we can be so patient with our own sins, so sympathetic, so understanding about our own failings, And yet when someone sins against us, we can come down so quickly like a ton of bricks. Why is it that we wish God to be gracious to us, forgetting our sin, casting it behind his back, 
And yet we could then spend hours brooding over the sins of others. Be careful, Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful. Because the way you judge others is how you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I mean, like Jonah, I mean, I can talk a great talk. I can chat theology till the cows come home. But if I'm not able to show grace to others, then something is seriously wrong. Do we show grace to others? Here's the second question. Secondly, does our self-concern keep us from speaking to others? And that's what we see here, isn't it? It's Jonah's idol of national pride. It overrided his concern for the lost. He cared more for his plant than the thousands and thousands of souls in that city. And again, are we so different? I've been reading a book recently by um, Rico Tice. He's an evangelist at All Souls in in London, uh, Langham Place. And and he tells in in one of the chapters the day which he uh, regrets most in his life. Uh, He tells of how his grandmother was on her deathbed. And she, like the rest of his family, they they have no belief in Christ. I think she thought her her good deeds would save her on the day she met God. She, she, She knew nothing of grace. And all of them, all of the family were staying in this house for the, for the week. And for this week, they were, they were waiting, really, for, for the inevitable to, to happen. And Rico says that he had plenty of opportunities to go and share Christ with her. He had plenty of opportunities to pray with her and to, to share some comfort about the gospel with her. But he didn't do it. Because he knew his family wouldn't approve and so he, he writes, she died without Christ and without hope. In his book, he says this, I quote, I love my grandmother and she loved me. But the hard truth is that I love myself more than her. I wanted my family to think well of me more than I, what, more than I wanted her to think well of Christ. That's why I didn't speak to her. I love myself more than I loved her and more than I love my Lord. So my family's respect and having an easy life, they became idols to me. May I ask you, what keeps you from speaking about Jesus to your friends, to your family, to your colleagues, to your neighbours? You might say, I don't know all the answers, I don't have all the clever words, but we, don't, we know enough, don't we? But the coin is in the machine. It just isn't dropping. And I suspect that like Rico, the thing stopping us from speaking most often is our idolatrous self-concern. A concern about my reputation and what people might think of me. A concern about the implications in the workplace. A concern about being too busy with our other projects or what the children might be up to. And put simply, we love ourselves and our comforts too much. And we love the lost too little. So along with Jonah, the Lord God invites us to reassess our values. 
reassess the value of those things which consume our hearts and consume our attention and consume our imaginations while the lost perish. I found, it's my own experience, I found we only really tend to do this re-evaluation when life really hits us. When life rocks us, when we lose our comforts, perhaps our health, or perhaps we lose a job or, or, or a friend, perhaps we lose our pride, we lose something. And it's a bit like that vending machine. Sometimes we need a slam for us to reassess things, for that coin to drop. And I, I found, personally, God uses those knocks to help us reassess those values. What really matters? And I believe, personally, that's what happened to Jonah. This is conjecture. I don't know this for sure. But our story doesn't really, doesn't really tell us what happened next, does it? It doesn't say what Jonah did next. It's left on that cliffhanger. But we have this story. Jonah must have gone home and told his experience to his friends. He must have told his friends what he'd learned And so we have this story. He he must have repented. He must have gone home and reassessed his values. He must have been liberated once more to speak for Christ. Just the other day, I was putting Chloe in the car, and a young man came along. I was just putting her in. He asked, oh, is that your daughter? I said, yes, she's my daughter. And I noticed this this chap had um, quite severe sort of uh, special needs. He had a carer with him. And uh, the man asked me, "Um, is that your daughter? I said, yeah, that's my daughter. And then he said, do you know Jesus? I went, I don't know what to say. what? And he said, I know Jesus. He's my best friend. And then he just carried on walking. And that made my day. Why did that make my day? Because here's a man who had no real concern for his reputation, what people thought of him. He He just loved Jesus. And he wanted to share Jesus with me. I'm praying that I become more like that guy. Here's a final question. Do we consider the concern that Christ has shown us? In our New Testament reading earlier on from Luke 19, Jesus finds himself in a very similar situation to Jonah. Did you notice that? That both of them are overlooking cities that had turned their backs on God. Both of them... Both of these cities are heading for imminent destruction. But whilst Jonah was weeping for his plant, what is Jesus doing? He's weeping for the lost. As we close, we would do so well to meditate on the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. His pity and his concern, it didn't just move his heart. It didn't just move him to tears. He didn't just cause him to click like on a Facebook page or to do some online petition. Jesus' love caused him to do something. How did Christ's compassion demonstrate itself for us? What did he do with that pity? Well, friends, he entered that city, that city which hates him, and there he was crucified. He entered a world which hated him. He left all of those comforts behind him. And he died. He died for you and he died for me. That we might have forgiveness. That we might be welcomed into God's eternal city. The new Jerusalem. Friends, 
to stop and consider Christ's pity for you. We have been shown extraordinary grace, extraordinary compassion. So friends, if that coin is in your machine, let it drop and show compassion to others. Let's pray. Father, we are hypocrites like Jonah. We are so absorbed by our self-righteousness. We can be so obsessed with our own comforts that we are utterly blind to the peril that hangs over so many people we know. Father, have mercy on us. Forgive us for our hypocrisy, for our judgmentality and help us to show Christ's compassion to them. Give us boldness, we pray. Knock us, we pray. Rock us that that penny might drop. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.